listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first reading comes from Exodus 24, 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. And Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Our second reading comes from Matthew 17, 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking... A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. I don't know what happened at the beginning of this year, but a bunch of new people started coming. And I'm very grateful. Welcome. Um, The mission of our church is to cultivate, say it with me, a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And one thing that we've learned in our collective habitus as American Christians is how to be anonymous religious consumers. And I would urge all of you who, to some degree or another, call Cornerstone your church home to actively reject being an anonymous religious consumer who comes into a worship gathering like this knowing no one and leaving no one and having no intentions to ever know anyone or be known by anyone. And I want to challenge and encourage you, whether it's this church or another church, to resolve to put down roots in a community of people who are learning to be apprentices of Jesus. If this happens to be this one, really, really great. Um, But I I hope that you will take up my challenge to learn to be an apprentice of Jesus in community. Uh, This community is really fun. I love being a part of this church. We're five years in. And uh, there are a couple of things that I want to ask you to pray for our church, a couple of specific ways that you can pray 
as we just navigate like what feels like the beginnings of a new season. I don't even know what the season's going to be like. One of those is we know that in the years to come, we want to be a church that grows not just through accumulation of people gathering in one spot, but through church planting. And that's not as easy as just pulling levers and pressing buttons. This is an organic process cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you to pray for the Lord to go before us and to guide us as we think about being a church-planting church for the years to come. The second thing I want to ask you to pray for is that we would be in touch with the Holy Spirit when it comes to making disciples. Somebody smart said, it doesn't, know, it doesn't matter how, much, how good your church is at anything if you're not good at making disciples. So I'd much rather us be significantly smaller in Sunday morning worship gatherings if there were more actual apprentices of Jesus. And we want to ask the Holy Spirit to pour out a spirit in us and, and that would be manifested in a disciple-making movement in our church. And then the third thing I want to ask you to pray for is for about a year, we've been working and we've been praying on like what to do about a physical gathering space. We've been renting this place for the last couple of years, and we're entertaining every option on the table, including just different ways of thinking, and we've yet to have a breakthrough, and we're asking the Lord to guide us in our thinking about the use of a physical space. And there's a lot of planning that we can do, a lot of due diligence that we can and should do, but there's nothing more important than we can do than to seek the heart of God and ask for his blessing and his favor and his guidance. So I want to ask you, will you please pray for these things, church? Please. <laughs> Thank you. This is the season of Epiphany. Uh, epiphany follows Christmas, and epiphany means manifestation. And there are three big manifestations of the glory of God in Jesus Christ that we uh, pay attention to in the season of epiphany. The first is the manifestation of God's uh, welcome to the Gentiles, the wise men. Uh, in the early church, uh, the, the story of the wise men was an even bigger deal than the story of Christmas because it foreshadowed that the non-Jewish people were going to be welcomed into God's family. God manifested his glory to these foreign astrologers. The second manifestation we see and we remember in the season of Epiphany happens at the baptism of Jesus, where not only is the sonship of Jesus glorified before the people, we also see the Trinity. As the voice of the Father speaks over the Son, this is my Son that I love, with him I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends as a dove. The people must have been scratching their heads thinking, who is this and what's going to happen to him and through him? And then the final manifestation that we consider in the season of Epiphany uh, is today, which is what's called the Transfiguration. This is Transfiguration Sunday when Jesus ends up doubly clothed in glory. Before Peter, James, and John, he, his, he's, he's, he's shown, his clothes are brilliant, his face is shining like the sun. They see him as he exists in the presence of the Father. And uh, glory by association, Moses and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus. Now, Luke's gospel tells us the subject matter that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. And Luke says very cryptically what they were talking about was Jesus' upcoming departure. The Greek word for this is, is the same word used for exodus. This, they're foreshadowing these Jesus is talking on the mountain with Moses and Elijah about what's about to go down as he goes, goes down the hill and makes his way toward Jerusalem. He's going to lead an exodus through his cross. Not out of literal slavery, but out of slavery to sin and death. Jesus is going to bear on his body the sins of all the world. Moses and Elijah each had their own mountaintop moments with God. Elijah, uh, in, in 1 Kings, 
uh, has this big showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, and God shows up with fire descending on the sacrifice of Elijah, though the prophets of Baal had doused it in water. After that, he flees to Mount Horeb, the same place where Moses had his mountaintop encounter with God, where the, the presence of God descended, it looked like a consuming fire to the outsiders. Moses and Elijah both had their profound moments of God on the mountain. Now, these titans who each carried forth the story of God in their own way in the Old Testament are also representative figures. Uh, Nina Reed pointed this out to me, that Moses is the name, the person associated most closely with the law. And then you have Elijah, who's one of the greatest of the prophets. And here we have with Jesus the law and the prophets present with Jesus about whom the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. If you see those three standing on a stage, who are you going to hand the mic to first? The father says, give it to my son. He's the one I love. Listen to him. An early church father by the name of Origen, writing in the second century, was struck by verse 2 of the passage from Matthew 17. There Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And what struck Origen was these words, before them. He was transfigured, his body was revealed in his heavenly glory before these three people, Peter, James, and John. And Origen writes, is it possible for Jesus to be transfigured before some, but not before others? Do you wish to see the transfiguration of Jesus? Behold with me the Jesus of the Gospels. There he's beheld both according to the flesh. He's a guy, he's a man, and at the same time he's also revealed in his true divinity. He's beheld in the form of God according to our capacity for knowledge. There's something both about the sight to behold and the eyes through whom he is seen. This is how he was beheld by those who went up upon the lofty mountain to be apart with him. Meanwhile, those who do not go up the mountain can still behold his works and hear his words, which are uplifting, but it is before those who go up that Jesus is transfigured and not to those below. When he's transfigured, his face shines as the sun, that he, be, he may be manifested to the children of light who have put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light." Origen argues that while many people may have known of Jesus, and they may have even been inspired by him, it's those who go up the mountain, figuratively speaking, who can truly know him and see him as he is, the Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from light, God from God, light from light, true God from true God of one being with the Father. In other words, Origen says, not everyone has the capacity to see Jesus as he is. Not everyone has the willingness to see Jesus as he is. Not everyone has the interest in seeing Jesus in his glory. It's like the art lover who drags their friend to go with him to the museum to stand before this great work, and one person is utterly enraptured, and the other person is bored to tears, tapping their toe, looking at their watch. How could two people have such polar reactions? One of them has eyes to see. There are people 
And there have been seasons in history where people have had their hearts set on climbing the mountain, so to speak, to be with God. There have been times where there has been unique, uncommon spiritual awakening in a person's life or in a group of people. And these seasons have almost always been preceded by some kind of call or return to holiness. The people who have been around in our church for, I mean, like a hundred years at this point will remember the story I told a lot early on of the revival in the Hebrides, these Scottish Isles in the 1950s where these two older women in their 90s, one of them was blind. These sisters had a broken heart for the disinterest among the young in the things of God. And these elderly sisters began to pray with passion to see a move of God in their time. It so moved the clergy of their little community that the clergy got together to begin to pray. And one night a person prayed with a special, special candor and said, God, you promised that you would pour out your spirit, that it would come on the earth like water on dry ground, and we're not seeing it. Your honor is at stake, God, so do what you promised. They're in this barn, and all of a sudden the barn begins to shake, and a pitcher falls off the wall and smashes to the ground. And then in the middle of the night, after a season of return to holiness and fervent prayer, the Spirit does an uncommon work of awakening among the people of the Hebrides. People who were dubious in their professions, people who were trapped in their sins, coming under the power of God and seeing a rapid transformation, an acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit, and it followed a call to holiness. For the people in the Hebrides, Psalm 24 was kind of their call to action. David writes, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. There have been mountaintop moments for the people of God. If you've not seen the news, it's happening right now in Wilmore, Kentucky. Right across from where I went to seminary, Asbury Seminary is Asbury University. And more than 10 days ago, after a very uneventful chapel service, a group of young people, a small handful of people, felt compelled to return to the chapel and pray. It's a picture of these little smatterings of students, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, who just felt compelled to pray. In the hours that follow, other students on campus felt this internal nudge, this wooing to go back to the chapel and pray. And for the last 10 Plus days, there's been nonstop prayer and worship on the campus of Asbury University, and people have come in from all over the country to see the spectacle of what is going on. CNN reported on it yesterday. There are moments where the Spirit descends, where it seems the Spirit beckons us to have an encounter with God in His glory. I have often said that the prayer life of our church has never been more than a steady candle. And one pastor said to me, yeah, but a steady candle can still set a forest on fire. And I'll tell you, for five years we've been gathering on Thursdays at lunch to pray. And I can tell you there were a lot of times where it was two of us or three of us. There were a lot of discouraging hours and half hours of prayer. And something has been happening in the last six weeks, the last two months. 
We've had 30 people at prayer, 25 people at prayer in the middle of the day on a Thursday. It is the place to be. I don't know why you're laughing. Come and pray with us on Thursday. You might ask yourself the same question I'm asking myself. Why are these kind of moves of God, uh, why do they not seem like they happen as often as we hear the stories? Why are these mountaintops encounters with glory not more frequent? And if Jesus is so brilliant, if Jesus is so glorious, how is it that not everyone is so taken with him? Well, uh, several reasons. One of them is mystery. I prayed, uh, I said over, over Addie, I quoted John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. We're dealing with mysteries here. Some of you may want to argue theology later. I don't really want to. It's a mystery. I wish I could press the button. I wish I could say, God, seize him. <laughs> it doesn't work. We're dealing with mysteries. Jesus said of the Spirit, the wind blows wherever it pleases. God will not be controlled. But we have learned by experience and from the Scriptures that the Spirit comes where the Spirit is welcome and where the Spirit is wanted. Why does it not happen more often? I wish I knew we're dealing with mysteries. Well, another reason why I think it doesn't happen more often is willful sin. And the catechism of our church teaches us that sin has an alienating effect. It alienates us in our, in our relationship to creation. It alienates our relationship with one another. It alienates our relationship with our Creator. Sin has an alienating effect. In fact, it creates distance. It distorts our perception of God. It malforms our loves and our affections so that we don't ask for the things that would lead to our own flourishing. Why do these things not happen more often? I think another uh, part that, that plays a dynamic in this is deception. I learned a really great word a couple of weeks ago, and the word is specious. Specious is having the ring of truth or plausibility, but it's actually fallacious. It's false. People have been blinded by the enemy through specious tactics. They believe things that sound true but are not true in reality. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light. Can you imagine being trapped in the dark? We just finished reading Tom Sawyer to our big kids, and he's trapped in a cave at the very end of the story. Spoiler alert, it's really old. <laughs> But can you imagine being so in the dark that you can no longer see the light? The light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. These things don't happen because people are deceived. They can't see Jesus in his glory because they've, they've bought into specious arguments. My greatest concern for us is, is willful sin is certainly an issue. Deception is certainly an issue. We're certainly dealing with mysteries. But I think the biggest threat to us is disinterest. Why do these things not happen? We don't really want them to. We don't really care. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, wrote, Tyrants of all varieties have always known about the value of providing the masses with amusements 
as a means of pacifying discontent. If we just keep them playing with bright, shiny objects, they won't pay attention to the fact that we are tyrants. But most of them could not have even hoped for a situation in which the masses would ignore that which does not amuse. If it's not a shiny little trinket, I'm not that interested. Blaise Pascal, in his journal Ponsais, wrote, Sometimes when I set to thinking about the various activities of men, the dangers and troubles which they face at court or in war, giving rise to so many quarrels and passions, daring and often wicked enterprises and so on, saying, when I think about all the psycho stuff that people do, I've often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. In other words, amused to death, we've lost touch with the needs and the longings of our own hearts, and we've stopped asking the big questions because we're no longer interested in the answers. Instead, we've, we've taken ourselves up with numbing behaviors or running or escaping behaviors from ourselves or God through busyness, through leisure, through frivolity, and we do this in perpetuity. In Orwell's 1984, the great books representing some of the great truths and insights answering the great questions of humankind were banned because the overlords knew that they would be a threat to the status quo and a threat to Big Brother. In Huxley's Brave New World, the great books are not banned. They're ignored because no one is interested anymore. They're so obsessed with pleasure, with leisure, with frivolity that they have no interest in them anymore. We're a society that is amusing ourselves to death, and we find no need and no interest for divine intervention. But there is something that grabs our attention. Old and young, rich and poor, there is something that happens to all of us from time to time over the course of our lives that seems to arrest our attention and grab us and look us straight in the eyes. There's something that can actually help us awaken to the deepest longings and needs of our hearts, and it's the thing that you would never ask for, and it's suffering. Sometimes it's suffering from a physical ailment. Sometimes it's suffering that comes as a consequence of destructive choices. Sometimes it's the misery that comes from binging on frivolities and neglecting your inner life and you find in time that you're hollow on the inside. And there can actually be a tremendous gift of clarity that is born of this kind of suffering. It's a regeneration that can only come on the other side of devastation. When we suffer relationally, when we suffer emotionally, spiritually, physically, we can have a sudden alertness to our deepest needs of life. Some of you who've, who've heard the word cancer and know how quickly that can sober you up and put in perspective the things that matter most, know you would never want to go back to that diagnosis, but you also know that there was a gift in it for you. There's a kind of clarity that can come in the middle of suffering. To cut through the fog of deception and frivolity and busyness and indifference and to see clearly is a gift. 
not meant to lead us to despair, but to provoke us to cry out to God for help. The Scriptures teach us that there are those times where God descends in glory and He meets the few on top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah. And it's appropriate for us to press in. It's appropriate for us to ask the Lord as Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. God demonstrates that He does this for the few. But the Scriptures assure us that He races to meet all who cry out to Him from the valleys. Prophet Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, said, This is what the High and Lofty One says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and a lofty place. But also with the one who is contrite, bankrupt in spirit, for the purpose of reviving the spirit of the lowly and reviving the heart of the contrite. The few are invited, like Peter and James and John, up on the mountain to be, see him as he is, beholding his glory. But all are promised to meet him in the valley of despair for those who cry out. God loves to be near those people who know that they need him. And if that's you, and when that's you, don't despair, but know that there's, being, there's a gift given to you in the middle of suffering. Cry out to him who is your only hope. As I was studying this passage, I was, I was trying to make sense of the similarities between Moses and Elijah and Jesus' stories. They all had these great moments on the mountain. Moses, it was at Horeb, also called Sinai. Elijah, it was at Mount Carmel, and then later at Horeb. But here we don't have the name of the mountain where this great encounter happened. And I think we don't have the name because if we heard the name, we might think, oh, there's something special about that geographical place. But that's not the point of the story. You can have an encounter with Jesus in his glory no matter where you are. If you're in a nightclub bathroom, or you're in jail like my friend Steve was, or you've just served papers, or just been served papers, or in the loneliness and the fear of processing the things that happened to you in your childhood, or in the loneliness that comes after you've lost your spouse, or in the insecurity that comes from being a teenager, no matter where you are, that can be a place to encounter the risen Christ. He's near to the brokenhearted. He dwells in a high and a lofty place, but also with those who are bankrupt in spirit, who, born of suffering, have the sudden clarity that life is about so much more than frivolity or entertainment. They're big questions, and we long for answers. Paul said that, that, that people's eyes can be blinded to see the glory of the gospel seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And the natural prayer for all of us must be then, Lord, unveil my eyes to see you. 
Of course, the Holy Spirit is present with us wherever we go, but the, the church has also understood over time that there are moments where the presence of the Holy Spirit is made manifest to us. This is what is happening in Wilmore. This is what, have, what has happened in perhaps in, in key moments in your life where you were aware of the presence of God. We would rightly and wisely ask, church, come, Holy Spirit, manifest your presence in my life. And for some of you, this couldn't come at a more important time. We're born of suffering. You've been given clarity, and I want you to know that that clarity is a gift you, wouldn't, you shouldn't trade anything for. Now let that clarity prompt you to cry out to the one who is near those who are broken in spirit. Let's pray together. Jesus, every one of us can think of someone who just breaks our heart. And we're, we, we so wish we could, we could force your hand and cause you to just intervene like you did with Paul. So many of us have a son or a daughter or a friend who's just being so destructive. And we wish that you'd help them to hit the bottom so that they could look up to try to find the light. Boy, if with, with everybody with your eyes closed, if that's you and you are just at the bottom and you just need God's help, or if you're, you're concerned for someone else, would you just lift your hand, not to me, but to the Lord as a prayer with your body? Lord, I need your intervention. Lord, make good on your promises. <laughs> Lord, make good on your promises. Be the father who runs toward his wayward children as they even have the first inkling of making their way home. Jesus, I pray that you would call prodigal children home to yourself. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit and call home those people who are just lost in addiction. And there's nothing but divine intervention that will make a difference for them. Come, Holy Spirit, and intervene. For those who've inherited deep wounds that they're now acting out in adulthood, Jesus, we pray that you would be the great healer. Oh, Lord, we so need your help. I think of Moses, Lord, saying, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't even send us. Lord, if your presence doesn't come and intervene in our lives from time to time, we'll give in to despair. And so we ask you to manifest your presence among us. Pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By his stripes, we're meant to be healed. 
Jesus, whatever it meant, all that happened in your death and resurrection, and whatever it means in our sharing of communion, give us every blessing of heaven you've got. Raise the dead among us, Jesus. Heal the sick among us. Put faith in the one who doubts among us, Jesus. We ask for your help, and we put our hope in you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.